We are not alone in this universe. We were not here first. This universe does not center around us. We are a very small part of a much bigger universe of species. Let's get into that. Welcome back to Drilling Down. so happy to be back with you. My name is Kyle Gray, your host here at Drilling Down, and today we're going to be covering Timothy Alberino's, well, I'd say latest book, but it's been about a year and a half now, and uh, I just haven't gotten to it. It is a book called Birthright. I've been following Timothy Alberino for quite some time. I think he has a very uh, forward-thinking look into the Bible, this UFO phenomenon, and what is to come. We're coming back with a vengeance here. At drilling down. The story of mankind, that's you and that's me, for us, it begins in the beginning, obviously. We look at the Bible and we see a story about us. We're Americans, we're narcissistic. The story of us does begin in the beginning, but not in the very beginning. The beginning of our story marks the appearance of a new sentient species in the universe, one specifically designed to inhabit the Earth. We've talked about this. Does it mark the beginning of all other species? And that's what Timothy gets into. That's what I want to get into now. We have talked about this at Drilling Down, but we are going to roll through his book, Birthright, and talk about these aliens these UFOs, these reptilians, these other possible species. We're going to talk about poltergeists. We're going to talk about ghosts. We're going to talk about the gray aliens. (laughs) I know. I know. And what they have to do with the Bible. Obviously, you know, since you've been here before, and if you're new, welcome to Drilling Down. Man is not alone in the universe. We don't claim that. Uh, We get that picture from people outside of Christianity that indeed that is the case with us. That we are here, we are it, and we claim as Christians there is a vast universe out there. And it's all about us. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. Nor is our existence on this rock (laughs) a random occurrence. Timothy says, like a decorative float rounding the bend in a parade, our appearance was carefully coordinated in the procession of time. Although our participation is, of course, of great importance, the parade was not organized in our honor. And our float as humans, as he says, was not the first float in this parade procession. So, we start off by understanding our place in the universe. I think Timothy is right to point out that 
we first need to get a grasp. I know guys, hang on to your seats. All right. This is going to really, it's going to wreck some of your guys' worlds. We are not the center of the universe. But we feel the need to be in the center of the universe. I mean, after all, I'm in the center of my life universe. I've got my family, my work life. I mean, everything's revolving around me. Everything about you is revolving around you. And then if for those of you living outside of the country, you know this about us Americans. We believe the world's revolving around us as Americans. (laughs) I think biblically, you're going to be in the right place to start off and say this is not about us. The universe was made much older and before you and I. It was all not part of the same thing, according to the Bible. We were born into the universe. We were not born with it. We were put in a timeline on that parade and our float as the human species was thrust into the fray of a complex political Societal and marital conflict involving incomprehensibly intelligent agencies of exceedingly, listen, ancient origin. For whatever reasons, and guys, I've been a Christian since 1979. By and large, we believe that we are the center of the universe. Like God put us here. God came and sent his son for us. And yes, all that is true. And in the end, like everything is about us, but that's not it. We have a huge part to play, but that's not it. So I grew up to believe and be taught. I thought that we were kind of the center of all things. And of course, Jesus loves us and came for us and died for us on the cross and, and we're it. And there are angels, of course, we knew about them in Sunday school. And there's God, of course, but all of them are here for us. And the first thing we have to do is get that completely out of our heads. The Bible says, you know, we talk about the book of Job and, and I read through the Bible a lot. And so when I get to the book of Job, there are some parts that I skim in the commentary of it all. But then when God starts speaking, uh, I really pay attention and I always love the, I've said that before, I think, but I, I just always love when he speaks to Job. After all the book of Job has been going on, right? And his three friends have been just killing this guy. <laughs> And God comes in and depances everyone. And he says things like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined in its, in its measurements. Surely, you know, that's a little, uh, we're looking for some sarcasm by uh, God there. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the mountain stars sang together, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You know, when creation was born before us, as the angels, God's heavenly family, thundered shouts of joy because they were there even before creation. So we read that verse and we may deduce two logical conclusions. First, that there are 
that this verse in general is not referring to literal stars, but the sentient sons of God. And second, that the sons of God are older than the earth itself, since they were present to witness its primordial formation. The morning stars and the sons of God are children of the dawn, the second-born sons, guys, in the family of God. What do these angels that Paul talked about, that Jesus Christ talked about, what, what are these beings? They represent an elder race of beings that are both preexistent and preeminent in relationship to all others, save the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, the first and foremost over all creation. The idea that there is indeed an alien elder race. And I'm not just saying that to sound cool and marry the Bible with everything that we're seeing in the movies these days. If you're new to drilling down, there is an elder alien race. They are not human. And throughout this, these few episodes here that we're going to have on Timothy Alberino's book, Birthright, because I think he lays it out very well, we're going to talk about that. Now, I will raise my hand and tell you that I was what's called a young earth creationist for a very long time. And I believe the earth was anywhere from 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 years old. Went to the Creation Museum in Kentucky many times, met with Ken Ham personally, shot videos. Uh, if you believed in a gap theory or that God, you know, created the, the universe to look old, you know, all that stuff, I just threw you out with the bathwater. Uh, and for the last 10 years or so, it really hasn't been the case. While again, I'm okay with getting to heaven and God explains things and I just didn't understand it on the time uh, axis continuum. <laughs> and whatever happens, I don't care. But I'm no longer stuck to that. Those who say the earth is billions of years old or, you know, you watch, we just watched the uh, what was it? The octopus, my octopus teacher the other day. And I would say absolutely positively watch that. Some people are, you know, shouting out on social media, I'll never eat octopus again. And I'm like, well, you're an idiot for eating in the first place. I tried it and it sucks balls. It's like eating rubber suction cups. It's not awesome. I don't care, but I prepare it. The no, you don't. It sucks. Just don't eat it. Anyway, watching that show. And, you know, every time you watch something on the History Channel or Nature, Discovery, Nat Geo, you know, they're always talking about these 14 billion years ago and everyone kind of rolls their eyes. I'm questioning these days if I should be rolling my eyes. It doesn't matter to me, but we're going to weigh, I guess, both options. The young earth theory doesn't, it just doesn't sit well with my worldview these days and some things that I believe God has brought into my life over the past 10 to 12 years. So we're going to unpack some of that. And I'm asking you, if you are a young creationist, to just be open to some other things. And that is not to say that evolution is real uh, in terms of what Charles Darwin said. That is That is not to say that we all came from you know, this tiny amoeba thing and the Big Bang. That is none of that. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. 
to think that we have to hold to a, a young earth creation to be Christians is as crazy as saying we have to hold to the King James Bible to be Christians, all right? Anyway, I don't want to get mogged and bogged and essentially possibly flogged for any of this, so I'm going to move on. What happens, when, and I was guilty of this growing up and being a Christian and a pastor for so long, of making ourselves the center of all things. <laughs> Everything's about human beings, right? When we read the Bible, that's all we get out of it. When we do that, we supplant the Son of God, Jesus, who is not only the primal source of the universe, but its primary purpose. Understand that. Paul articulates the correct view with supreme elegance. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Jesus was. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created, listen, through Jesus, here we go, and for Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things Consist. Notice that all things were created not only through Jesus, but for Jesus. It all comes down to Jesus, whether we're talking about Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, doesn't matter. It comes down to Jesus. The Son of God is the first cause, the initial singularity, and the intrinsic purpose of the universe. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. The universe was not made, Timothy says, for the earth. I'm going to say it again. The universe was not made for the earth, and the earth was not made for man. It was all made for Jesus, the firstborn and beloved son of the father, the apple of his eye. So, when we look at this not being a, I guess, human-centric deal, it is a Christocentric deal all around Jesus Christ. When we look at the scriptures in the light of that, some things are going to change, and I'm going to help you out along the way. We can comfortably disassociate the creation of the universe with the creation of mankind. As man was not its purpose. Moreover, the fact that the morning stars were present to witness the primordial formation of planet Earth presumes a pre-Adamic paradigm. That means before Adam and Eve. The pre-Adamic controversy is entirely inconsequential when man is properly positioned within the order of creation. It is perfectly logical to infer that non-human intelligent beings, listen, were inhabiting other worlds in the cosmos before Adam was created on earth. Indeed, the inference is made in the Bible. Yeah, the writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time, passed to the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also, he made the worlds or ages. And again, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, the son of God, Jesus, as John calls him, the word became flesh so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
John talks about this. He talks about the end of the age when Jesus will be returning to the earth on this white horse with the armies of heaven. We've talked about this a lot. In the end times, the armies of heaven are in train. His head is adorned with many crowns and his thigh is emblazoned with the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Anytime titles of regency are directed, juxtaposed in the text, in this case, kings and lords, they often reflect two distinct realities, the terrestrial and the extraterrestrial. You'll see it all over the place, the human and the non-human. Now, uh, some writers will go on, they'll call this the yin and the yang. And when you get into how to write, whether you're writing a protagonist or, you know, writing a book or a movie or whatever, you always have to have the dark and the light, right? That's how these things work. It's how it works. It's no different in the Bible. It actually started there. And anytime you have the terrestrial reign, you have the extraterrestrial as well, working hand in hand. And sometimes if you don't understand this, you'll be reading your Bible. Even if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you'll be reading your Bible. And you'll think that is pertaining to us as humans and be human-centric, Kyle-centric. But it's not. It's not even written about us. It's written about the Lord's other family and vice versa. There are extraterrestrial guys, thrones, dominions, principalities, and they are appointed by the Son of God, the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ, way before the creation of mankind. They've been here a very long time, highly highly intelligent. They have a different means of, listen, transportation. They have a different means of, uh, of power, a different grasp on time and reality and dimensions. So I get a lot of people asking me a lot of times, what was happening then? Let's say that the earth is millions or billions of years old. I don't care about whatever number you put on it. Let's say you want to say, no way, Kyle, this can only be like 2,000 years before Adam. I don't care. What do you care? Don't be stupid. We know there was definitely time before that. So what was it? Back in the 90s, when I started a ministry in the early 90s, mid-90s, you would get crucified if you tried to talk about a gap theory. <laughs> that was the uh, – that was you trying to be an evolutionist and marry, you know, the Bible and Christianity as well. That's not what we're doing here. We're reading at a face value. So what was it like before Adam? Well, I believe, and we'll get into this, that this ancient race – had empires throughout the universe. God, you're talking like Star Wars. Kind of. And they had intergalactic battles of some sort. And they had their own places. Well, let's say it's Saturn. What is going on with that weird thing on Saturn? There's a lot of stuff going on in our solar system, let alone the entire universe, that God says, I'm going to go ahead and make this this special place, Earth, that it seems the ancient race had pretty much demolished and destroyed. And he said, I am going to level it, make it form, make it without form and void amidst this gorgeous, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping universe of glory. I am going to make this Earth barren and I'm going to bring it back to life. And I'm going to make it so 
just for this new part of my family. Because you other ancient aliens have ruined it. And you could still keep that universe for a while, but this planet will now be theirs. There were systems of government in the biblical narrative about monarchies. There's kingdoms of heaven, which is the kingdom of God and a high king who sits on a throne before all who tremble and pay obedience to him, whether they want to or not. There are lesser thrones in the Bible configured in the hierarchy of the empire that are occupied by the king's delegates, princes, and regents who do his bidding. The kingdom has a court. It's in the Bible. It has a council. It's in the Bible. The the, the heavenly realm is in this ethereal place, right, where uh, all of these dismembered bodies are just floating around. That's not what it is. Non-corporeal. That's not what the Bible says. There's courts, councils, armies, counselors, courtiers, couriers, and warriors. There's a royal family of alien beings and a ruling class. There are rebellions and they're incited by disaffected factions and put down with decisive force from Yahweh sometimes. There's these insurgencies that rise up amongst these aliens. They're formed and they they vie for a piece of this imperial landscape. In their most fundamental aspects, the visible thrones and dominion of terrestrial governance are reflections of their invisible extraterrestrial counterparts, including and perhaps especially in the aspect of war. We're actually going to cover that a lot in our time here. We think about armies, and at some point I'm going to talk about Elisha and Elijah and some things that were happening around that time, okay? Uh, and we have this idea that, yes, the Lord's army is fighting for us. <laughs> uh, something like sometimes we feel for going through something that maybe, you know, there's a guardian angel right there for us. Or maybe we feel like there's some, some angels on horses clopping around that, uh, or they, you know, flying around. They can like cruise through the trees and come comfort us when we, we need it or they don't even need horses because they have wings. I don't know. Who cares? That's not what we're talking about. So I want, this is just you and me here. I, I want to set this whole idea of the birthright in the realm that uh, the, the heavenly realms, guys, these ancient aliens, these good ones and the bad ones, have absolutely positively tangible technology, just like we do, but different and far more advanced. They have civilizations, just like we do. They have governance. Their armies and their militaries will one day literally go to battle, guys, with the armies of this world, both on the good side and the bad side, will all come together under one. And it's not like tanks and planes are trying to blow up other tanks and planes. While, meanwhile, in the sky, it's this whole Roman god fight going on. That's not what's happening. It will be technology physically, technology against technology. 
And I talked about that in a few, a few back. So I want to focus on you have to understand when we're talking about the other realm, it's just that they're in a different dimension, higher dimensions. They have a concept of that maybe right next to us. They can't get to us most of the time. We can't get to them. It's a dimensional thing, but you can't keep looking at it like that angelic realm, if you want to call it that, is somehow different or lamer than ours. It's better, faster, stronger, more vivid, more alive. They are not God or Jesus. So they need technology and they need things. They have organizations and a complex society on the other side of that veil. Got to get that in your head. We just have this idea of angels for whatever reason that they're those fat chubby dudes floating around. So <laughs> you got to get that out first and foremost. There are rare occasions in the Bible that these messengers, that's what angel means, but there's a vast, a plethora of diversity amongst them. Sometimes, and it's very, very rare in the Bible, that one of them is dispatched to communicate with the inhabitants of earth, whether it's a nation, people group, or a single prophet, or Mary, what have you. So I put on the Drilling Down Facebook page sometimes these uh, accurate drawings of men, or I'm sorry, drawings of angels <laughs> in their in their form according to the Bible. It's all these rings within rings and wings and eyes, right? And it's popular meme around the internet right now. You kind of see it everywhere and, and so on. But uh, though those are mostly coming from Ezekiel and things like that. But I don't want to get into, and there's some Jewish Kabbalah stuff they're getting into. But in the Bible, make no mistake that when they come, they resemble us. Or rather, I would probably say we resemble them. So possibly looking into their realm from who we are now, unless they come to us, we get this, I don't know, garbled mathematical vision. And it's horrifying of what they actually are because our three dimensions just cannot translate well. Does, you think? I mean, it's just a theory on my part. There's all these layers of film in this dimension interstellar and what we're seeing on the other side is we look through whether it's in a vision or whether it's in whatever uh, we we look through whether we're on dmt or mushrooms don't do it but you know it's there psilocybin we look through and we can't quite grasp so okay so maybe they look like that and it's not translating right but i know that when they come to us for the most part not all the time but for the most part, they come with the appearance of men. The writer of Hebrews, while reminding the church not to neglect the entertainment of these strangers, right? Angels unaware, 
It includes the curious addendum. For by doing so, this is that idea of you never know when you're going to encounter angels unaware. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Quite contrary to this Renaissance imagery, right? <laughs> the Michelangelo painted and everything like that. We don't have any female angels at all in Scripture. Which is why I believe the whole Genesis 6 thing happened. But we will encounter during this study these extraterrestrials, and that's what they are, because angel is just a term. We get it out of your head. Extraterrestrial. They have technology, and they have, as Timothy Alberino will point out so well in this book, they have vehicles of conveyance. They have weapons of war. They eat, they drink. We see that in the Bible. Abraham, we had Lot. We had some things going on there. Uh, the children of Israel ate, ate the bread of heaven, what they called manna, right? So it's possible that's the bread that, you know, some of the angels can eat and that sort of thing. We obviously have that happening. We have the, my devotionals, you know, yesterday I was reading through, getting through the gospels and I was on John at this point and, you know, we're just reading about how when Jesus uh, in Luke comes back after his resurrection and he wants to prove to them, you know, touch my hands, touch my feet, see these holes. I, it's really me. Hey, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And he didn't have to eat anything. It was a resurrected Jesus. He was in the new stuff. He was, well, he was indestructible. He was Thor on steroids. And he said, give me some of that broiled fish. I'll eat so that you know I'm, again, not this Casper the friendly ghost guy. I am real. And so we see that in heaven and with Jesus. Uh, Timothy actually talks about this, and I'm going to read from this portion of the Gospels. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled, Jesus? Why, do you, why does doubt arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, <laughs> they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. I didn't even actually know this because I didn't turn the page yet <laughs> on my iPad. I was just telling you, looks like I'm a little ahead of things here. And he took it and he ate it before him, okay? Timothy says, this passage is highly intriguing. After inviting his disciples to touch the flesh of his hands and feet, still bearing the marks of the crucifixion, Jesus asked for something to eat in order to further prove his corporeality. The risen Christ is the firstborn from the dead and the forerunner of what man is to become at the resurrection. The glorified body is a physical human body. Clearly, the consumption of food and drink is not merely the exercise of fallen flesh, nor is it exclusive to the terrestrial realm. And I think that's very important. When people ask me what heaven's going to be like, and I can't remember, it's been a while, but what episode I talked about this on, sorry about that, uh, that when we get to heaven, it is not us floating around. It is us knowing, absolutely knowing our wives, our husbands, our family members, our brothers, our sisters, possibly even the dogs that made it so happy here and probably not the cat, definitely not the cats, but they're going to be there. And we will be able to, uh, I mean, it's, we're going to be able to walk the streets. We're going to be able to shop in a perfect world, hang out with some of the great prophets of the land, fly to the greatest, um, you know, waterfalls and rainbows, literally fly. We can't, uh, you know, it's no pain, no suffering. You're not just going to be sitting uh, in a church service praising God all day, but you'll be praising him with, with your life. It's going to be real. It's tangible. It's in the Bible. Guys, 
We have too many Christians, I'm just going to say it, that believe we have it too good here and they don't want to die. You're missing it. I don't want to, I don't want to leave this because then I'll just be floating around the rest of my life. That's not it at all. This is a dim shadow of the glorious life God's going to provide for us, for those who say yes to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, obviously, they eat and, sl- I don't know if they sleep, but they definitely drink and they, they breathe air in the extraterrestrial realm. Some angels deliver messages. Some engage in warfare. Some execute the judgment of God and some minister to the children of men, but we are never explicitly told who or what exactly they are. So, we have extrapolated the angels in heaven, uh, you know, that they have that they look like, again, the Sistine Chapel. Well, Timothy Alberino looks to change your perspective in his book where he talks about the fact that they have a spoken language of their own. They have a written language of their own, far more ancient, far more complex than ours. They keep records. They sing and compose music. They eat, they drink, they possess, they wield, and assumedly they build technology, and they are the subjects of a kingdom, complete with a complex system of government and a standing army far superior to ours. Guys, these are the hallmarks of society and culture. It is therefore rational to conclude that the non-human angelic beings depicted in the scriptures are the citizens of an advanced extraterrestrial civilization that far predates our own. Friends, mankind did not invent civilization. You have to stop thinking that. Well, right? Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and then Cain goes out and goes to the first city, Nod, and he builds that. We talked about this. What was he doing? He, we didn't invent cities. We didn't invent civilization. They were here forever ago. We inherited that. The benchmarks of a civilized society, a sophisticated bureaucracy, a social hierarchy, a Criminal justice system, refined, spoken, and written language, technological advancement, military organization, and so forth. They were already existent in the universe before Adam even emerged from the clay and the dirt of the ground. We have got to change our perspective on that. Biblically, he goes into a whole thing, as do most of my Christian writer heroes on this subject, Derek Gilbert, Josh Peck, Dr. Michael Heiser, Ellie Marzulli. You always have to just kind of go through and Start by saying, look, this, you have to deal with the Genesis three things, which we have at nauseum saying the fact that the sons of God towards Genesis three to Genesis six were extraterrestrial. And they indeed cohabitated with the women of the earth because they could not procreate. They also wanted to destroy these newfound human things that God found favor in. Because they were always his favorites. We've talked about this at length. So I don't want to get into that whole 
argument on what they are or how they are, I want to move into how we are shadows in a greater reality. I was talking about that portion with Elisha earlier, and I want to, I want to get into this a little bit on how there's a veil between our world and this extraterrestrial world. For those of you that are new to drilling down, we see a UFO pop into existence, which UFOs are real or UAPs, as we're supposed to call them now, pop into our skies, move across, they get filmed. They are very much real. They're very much a, a extraterrestrial uh, conveyance, a vehicle. For whatever reason, they need that technology in order to move about in this dimension. All right. So that being said, uh, they're not coming from a gazillion miles away. They are just moving interdimensionally and they are just popping in and out of our time. Wormholes, all of it. Anyway, we talked about that a lot, but I want to get to this portion of Elijah. Much of the supernatural activity reoccurring in the biblical narrative is demystified when we read against the backdrop, uh, backdrop of what I'm calling, and Timothy Alberino calls, a hyperdimensional universe. So we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 6 in the Bible. Uh, the Syrian army had just encircled the city of Dothan. This is a real physical Syrian army, right? They had horses. They had chariots. It was the dark of the night. They were intent on capturing the prophet Elisha. They were going to kill him, and there was nothing he could do. I mean, he was surrounded by a powerful army. And he and his servant saw that Elisha was a great prophet of the Lord. They saw that they were hopelessly ensnared, and Elisha's servant cries out, Oh, no. Master, what shall we do? You know, you can just imagine this real life scene playing out. What the crap? So we go to the Bible. Now I want you to something that you've probably missed every single time you've read it in your whole life. I actually, I can almost guarantee you missed it. Mm -hmm. So he, Elisha, answered. Listen to the wording. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, and the Lord said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes, that he may see the servant. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw what Elisha saw. <gasps> and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So Elisha's going to die, completely closed off by the Syrian army, when God allows the veil to be lifted from Elisha's servant, so he could see what Elisha had seen all along, that up on the hillside were these flaming chariots and horses of fire. And he looks at that, the veil was lifted, and he says, are you freaking kidding me? This is awesome. And I love, as Timothy points out, that Elisha prayed for his servant's eyes to be opened. Not that the invisible army of horses and chariots would be made visible. Isn't that interesting? This is because the angelic army was not invisible, but rather imperceivable. Now, this is fascinating, this portion of scripture that you've probably read a million times. I've always thought about that too. Why in the world wouldn't Elisha just say, okay, 
Joke's up, Lord, reveal your army to them. And then all of a sudden the Syrian army sees us, all these horses and, you know, the classic movie scene, chariots on fire and, and all these things up on the ridgeline, charge, and they run. And, you know, we'll talk about how that story ends out later. Uh, but instead of doing that, they, they just couldn't be perceived in this realm. We couldn't see them. So Elisha knew not to pray for that. Rather, we're going to let your, you know, God, please come and let this human perceive them for a special purpose. So the thing that everybody misses here is we always look at this as, again, here's the Syrian army loaded up and all of a sudden, God steps in as he has many times throughout the Israelites' lives and won a victory for them. We'll again talk about the hilarious Yoda incident that Elisha does here in a second, but we'll get to that later. But here's what we miss. When the servant's eyes were opened, he not only saw the good guys invisible army he saw the bad guys invisible army and that's what he was talking about how do you know that Kyle listen to the wording so he Elisha answered the servant listen do not fear here we go for those who are with us now who was with them no one so the servant thought, but Elisha knew they had an invisible army there. <laughs> Imperceivable army, should I say. For those who are with us, so that angelic army that is with us, listen, are more than those who are with them. You wouldn't say it that way if there wasn't an imperceivable army with them as well, an evil one. You would say something to the effect of those that are with us are more than they are. But he says, <laughs> don't fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There is an angelic army behind every good and every bad role being played out in this universe. And it is a real one. And it is one that you cannot mistake as being lesser or invisible or who cares because we're going to spend eternity with it. I always laugh because you come to this point where I love looking back on giant medical mistakes in history, but really the last 200 years – you know, because there were things that you couldn't figure out before a microscope. You just didn't know. There were things before penicillin was invented or whatever it is. Even, even the, even like, uh, these cigarette ads from the 1950s, you know, that's like doctor recommended smoke camel non filters for your smoother, healthier. And it's got this doctor on it, just, just wailing on this non filtered camel, right? I love that stuff. We're always learning new things. And of course, we're going to look back on, you know, some things that we're doing today in 2022 right now as of this recording that in, in 10 years we're going to look back on and laugh at. So anyway, we have a lot of that going on. 
So what happens is if we don't know or don't understand or we don't have all the information on something, then what we do is just make stupid superstitions out about them. Timothy Alberino says it this way, defining what we cannot perceive as supernatural has endangered many foolish and injurious superstitions throughout history that have greatly inhibited knowledge and proliferated, Kyle, proliferated ignorance. Before the invention and utility of the microscope, it was commonly believed that diseases were caused by foul air or demonic spirits, right? You have all this, you know, all this stuff. It was not until we could peer into the microscope world that we, uh, microscopic world rather, that we finally identify the true culprit, germs, dun, 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 not these magical ghosts that can only be cured by heroin. The problem was one of perception. Our inability to perceive the microbial world led to the fabrication of superstitious conclusions, equally so. Superstitions regarding the supernatural inevitably result from our inability to perceive the dimensional totality encompassing us. These hidden facets of reality, though invisible to our sensory faculties, are nevertheless perfectly natural within our context of a hyper-dimensional universe. Again, in my reading, as I'm going throughout the Gospels the last couple of days, and you cruise those pretty quick, especially the synoptic, synoptic ones, when Peter, James, and John ascend to the summit of what we now know is Mount Hermon, okay? If I have to recover this, when Jesus looks at Peter at one point and says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he was not talking about Peter, as, as Catholics believe. He was talking, he wasn't talking about the church, he was talking about Mount Hermon the rock that Genesis 6 happened on, that God will, Jesus will topple once and for all. And he did, and he will again. So anyway, the transfiguration also happens on Mount Hermon, as in Jesus was looking at that Genesis 6 thing, 6 thing and saying, you lost. Anyway, he was transfigured before them, Peter, James, and John. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes radiated, radiated with white light. Moses and Elijah appeared to converse with him. As the disciples gaped in wonder, suddenly a cloud overshadowed them, which would freak me out, and a voice thundered the pronouncement, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the cloud passed, only Jesus remained. The message was clear. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, the word of God in print. But Jesus is the living word through whom and for whom all things exist. For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Guys, the biblical narrative propounds a theory of everything in which the laws of nature are bound together within the unifying symmetry of a singular universe created through, listen, and upheld by the word of God, both Jesus Christ and what we have in our Bibles bound together as one. Like two sides of the same coin, Every competent, every component, rather, of created order, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, are synergistic parts of the same universe and equally subject to the laws that govern. Ergo, there is no power beyond nature except for the Father and his only begotten Son, the singularity through whom the continuum of space and time was created. Christ is all, and Christ is in all.
as I listen to podcasts these days, not Christian ones at all, and just different different things to expand my mind, whatever the case. There's a lot of talk of the soul these days, both from a Baha'i aspect, Hindu aspect, Islam, again, Judaism, Buddhist, whatever. There's this idea and this questioning of the soul, new agey movements. So here's a question. Where does your soul reside? (laughs) Why are you talking about this, Kyle? Well, I'm talking about this because Timothy talks about this and I've put it around in different places, but it's great that he compiles everything together and this is going to be great for us. Where is your soul? Well, Kyle, I've heard this. I've heard that when people die, they lose like uh, 0.0 ounces, 0.17 ounces leaves their body and that must have been their soul. That's not true, first of all. (laughs) Did you know that? Okay. Gum doesn't stay in your stomach for seven years. So where is the soul? Well, it's magically inside of us, Kyle. And then when we die, it leaves our body and it's invisible and it's instantaneous floats up to heaven. Where is our soul? Is it then, is it between my pancreas and my bladder? Is it, is it like near my anus? (laughs) Where is it? So, if you tie together all the dimensions and you say, hey, look, uh, things can exist in and out of our dimensions and be part of the same thing. It's hard for us to understand. But let's say there's a fourth spatial dimension. And even, I mean, this isn't even a Christian thing. They're coming. They think there's at least 12 dimensions right now. So just go with me here. What if our anatomy is composed of more than three dimensions that are directly, we can look down, we can see it's perceivable to us. My sister just had, uh, she, she had some stuff going on. They had to open her up and get that all taken care of. She's good to go. That being said, you know, you physically, I could open myself up right now. I'd rather not do that and uh, see what's going on in there. So those of you who have witnessed the C-section, you're horrified, right? There's just stuff being pulled out of there with a... So, what if, and this is just playing along with getting the stage set for us, what if, what if there's more to our body in other dimensions? Now, don't count me out and don't say I'm a weirdo, even though I am. I think we're wise to talk about one of the species on the bad side of extraterrestrials that the Bible talks about. It's just one of many called demons. And you hear pastors talk about this all the time. They will call Satan a demon. They will call something that's going on with you, you know, UFOs, demons. They will call really anything bad that's happening, demons. They will call fallen angels, demons. And I get it. I get it's one thing to say that something's demonic. Okay. So I understand that, you know, comes from that realm, smells like them, talk, you know, looks like them a little bit. It's, it's got the look, the feel. But these are all very different entities. A demon is not a gray alien. Gray aliens are real, by the way. We're really going to get into that in some of these episodes in this particular series. Anyway, I know. Isn't that great? I know. You guys are pumped. 
So we, we look at this just to start off. We're going to start with, you know, we're starting off with a bang here at our almost hour one demonic position, a uh, demonic possession. The fact that it is absolutely real. You've heard me talk about that, that there are good, not crazy, not crazy Christians or denominations that are always peeling demons out of everyone. While I believe that can exist, I'm just saying there are incredible Bible believing Christian deliverance ministries that have to do with both demons, and alien abduction, and all of it. So we're going to get into some of that. Russ Dizdar does a lot of that stuff. So demonic possession is a baffling condition. Apparently some facet of human biology, right? I'm telling you right now it's real. So even if you're like, I don't believe you can be possessed, I'm telling you it's real. Christians can't be demonically possessed, but can we be uh, preyed upon by the grace? I believe so. <laughs> and you know I'm going to leave you lingering on that. You know we're going to come back to it soon, but hey. Okay, so anyway, demonic possession, real deal. Some facet of human biology can be inhabited by parasitical spirits who hijack the body of their host. It's all over the New Testament. So think about this. This unsettling circumstance is not unlike a carjacking. Imagine you're riding, idling at a red light when suddenly several masked men approach your vehicle and they force their way inside. One of them enters through the driver's side door, showing you into the adjacent, shoving you into the adjacent passenger seat. You now have unwanted company traveling with you and they have the wheel. Depending on the strength of the intruders, you may be able to wrangle back into the driver's seat and regain control of the vehicle, but this company remains within the car. It's easy to visualize, as Timothy says in this point, these masked intruders sitting inside of a car. But where do they reside when the vehicle is your body? Well, Kyle, you know, like the demons and that that realm, they're just invisible and they can just go inside of me and come in. They can just hang out in there and stuff. All right, all right. Do some... Inhabit the large, you know, when, when we get demon possessed as Christians, you can't be demon possessed, but when people do get demon possessed, where are they at in there? Are they in your small intestine? Do some demons like the spleen or the kidney? These scenarios would be equivalent to our hypothetical carjackers occupying the gas tank or carburetor of your engine rather than the seat. The passenger compartment, which is obviously asinine. So like a car, the vehicle of your biology must have a seat for the soul. A passenger compartment of sorts, right? For which the brain and by extension, other bodily functions are controlled and into which demonic spirits can intrude and comfortably reside. Think about that. Well, again, Kyle, what? How does it happen? It's entirely plausible that a fourth and higher spatial dimension, listen, is con concealed within or without human biology. Again, an imperceivable appendage designed to house the soul. 
this fourth dimensional compartment would not necessarily be constrained within the three dimensional proportions of your body, but might represent a commodious space large enough to accommodate multiple souls. Interesting. Christ's encounter with the Gedarene demoniac, we've talked about him a lot, possessed by Legion was the name, and this was a very sarcastic bunch of demons inside of this dominiac. They were taunting Jesus with that. They were powering up. Their name wasn't Legion. They knew what a Roman Legion was. They're, they're powering up and saying, oh, good luck. We've got a lot of us in here. Obviously, a human is capable of housing many demons who are themselves the disembodied souls of angel-human hybrids from Genesis 6 and the Flood. It also demonstrates that animals are equipped in that passage with the same extraspatial compartment as the demons who are quite content to inhabit pigs. We'll come back later in our next episode, and we'll talk about that. Maybe consciousness is an indi indication that there is more to biology than meets the eye. And it may ultimately prove that human beings, and indeed all conscious creatures, are inherently hyperdimensional. Now, as we start getting into all of that, it gets a little weird. Uh, I don't like to speculate, although you people love me to speculate because I can be wildly entertaining and I can also be wildly wrong. I'm not scared to be wildly wrong. It's not the first time or anything like that, <clears throat> but I do get very hesitant of it. I get a little leery of it when it comes to the Bible and scripture. It's not, it's not really our place uh, to do too much speculation. Now, that being said, if we're guided by the Bible, then maybe, maybe just maybe, we might be onto something here. We have to reflect back on, as we have so many, so many other times of drilling down about the rebellion that happened, the war and the ruin. Uh, as we're thinking about this whole, we're not human centric, right? Everything in the Bible, sorry, again, does not revolve around us. Now that we know that, now that we're kind of flexing our brains on that, we understand that we showed up amidst a lot of things going on, maybe even eons of untold history that we don't know. But there are some things that point towards maybe what happened there. I love the way Timothy Alberino says it here. The earth and the distant extraterrestrial worlds are reeling in the wake of rebellion, war, and ruin. A powerful insubordinate prince personified as the dragon, the serpent, the devil. This is so much like Star Wars, like the opening credits. <laughs> and the Satan has mounted an unsuccessful insurrection against the kingdom of heaven in a battle of unimaginable destruction. Upon his defeat, the dragon, our preferred handle for him hereafter, and his confederates were exiled to the earth's interior as punishment for their crimes. Uh, 
So we're going to look at a part of Ezekiel here. Now, when you read these uh, portions about the king of Tyre and all these type of things, I definitely, uh, there's one section that is talking about a king, and then there's another section that is definitely talking about Satan. Now, I'm going to read it. All right, don't roll your eyes. Here we go. Son of man, raise a lamentation. This is said of Ezekiel as a prophet. Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you were the signet of perfection. This is not talking about an earthly prince, an earthly king. This is talking about who we'll call Lucifer. Okay. Thanks to the Catholics. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Anyway. Uh, let me see here. So, all right. You were the signet of perfection. I was going to say something there. I'm just going to leave it to the Bible. Smart, Kyle. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. No earthly man was there. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, burnal. And there goes my phone because, uh, why did I leave it on? I'm an idiot. Gosh, Kyle, what a rookie move. Is this my first podcast? I'm not going to edit that out. I care. I'm not scared of you guys. A bunch of cool emeralds and everything like that. Man, could those be like the planets that he occupied that are just that color around us to our eye in our solar system? And uh, I don't know how much we're going to get into those planets, but uh, you're gonna, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to blow your underwear off. Anyway, that's not in the Bible. On the day that you were created, uh, they were prepared. Hmm. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, you guys know what I'm talking about here. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the absence of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, said the council. Uh, your heart was proud because of your beauty. I can relate. You're corrupted, uh, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities. We're almost done, guys. By the multitude of your iniquities. In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I, God says, brought fire out from your midst and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be forevermore gone. This is not a human or Phoenician king, but some type of inhuman extraterrestrial power belonging to a throne, an ancient Providence, who happened to be in Eden, we see, God says, the garden of God. I believe that the king of Tyre here is none other than the defiler of Eve, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. The former prominence of the fallen dragon prince is plainly disclosed in the title guardian cherub, in contrast with the term angel. 
the cherub as a denomination, as a denomination, is never applied to human beings ever. So we could go back to the son of God thing with angels. Like we know this is not a human. So I think Tim does a great job of going through here and showing why that is definitely uh, an extraterrestrial being. Let's just say Satan himself. And the fact that that dragon walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, many of you have read this before and been like, what is, what is this? Some type of like dragon slayer thing, like some kind of Minecraft game where you're just like walking over these stones of fire and there's a, a gauntlet and a dragon there. It's interesting. So I like where Timothy goes here. I'm going to read this from him. Although there is little evidence to support this postulation, the stones of fire may be emblematic of the planets in our solar system. And again, we've talked about this. It's something I've uh, often, and this goes back to, uh, uh, geez, oh, Pete's, what's his face? Gosh, Kyle, you're losing it. Uh, anyway, uh, this goes back, this goes back many, many years to, uh, to a lot of guys who have come before us and, and have talked about this, uh, very thing. I don't mean like thousands of years. I mean like, you know, 20 years ago. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to get off on that right now. <clears throat> Could it be the planets in our solar system? The nine precious stones, right? That served his covering there in Ezekiel, or perhaps his dominion. They correspond with the eight planets in our solar system, plus one that was obliterated. Is he going Nibiru here? Is Kyle going planet X on us? The residue of this missing planet is evidenced in the asteroid belt, located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, and could provide the context for the declaration, I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now, this is very interesting. If you've done any work on planet X, planet nine, Nibiru, and you, you know, you, you do any bit into that, you can go to the weeds, but you can also find yourself somewhere very interesting, especially when it comes to the book of Job. Mm. And this is going back years. I've been trying to put all this together, but it's been on the back burner. So we have this dragon that's the most beautiful of all the stars. That's the chief among the cherubim. In a fairy tale twist of fate, the love of his own beauty became a fatal attraction. I just want to be close to you. Right? We going 80s fatal attraction? Uh, and it has uh, been the case with many human, well, the we're thinking here, I'm going back to, I'm just going to say it guys in my twenties <laughs> in my early, early thirties, I was an absolute idiot. I was on the stage in front of thousands of people all the time. And, uh, I thought I looked awesome. How can you not with the earrings and the nose rings and the eye rings and the, uh, the blonde tips and the puka shells and metal beaded choker necklaces and the vintage seventies shirts and, uh, Adidas wristband and a rage against the machine shirt. Ripped green cargo shorts and Doc Martens. How can you not rule the world? Who can handle this great looking man? And I go back through and Facebook will throw up some memories or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So anyway, 
You ever thought you were beautiful? This guy sure did, right? The height of the dragon's pride and the depths of his downfall are advertised in Isaiah 14. Let me read. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which really means bright star. We don't worry about the Latin here, the Vulgate. Son of the morning, morning star, how you are cut down to the ground, Isaiah says. You who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds, and I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? You shook the kingdoms. You made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities. Who did not open the house of his prisoners? This Lucifer, this shining one, this bright star, we see, again, from the Latin, and that misleads us a little bit, that the purpose of this text here in Isaiah is not to christen the dragon with a new name, but as in Lucifer, but to identify him as a morning star. To say that he is a light bearer is missing the mark. He is an apostate son of God, fallen, fallen from the elder race. This sounds like the Transformers movie. Yeah, the fallen, right? Everybody's getting their shiz from the Bible. Lucifer, that bright star that rose in the morning, has fallen from heaven. He that sent orders to all the nations is now crushed upon them. As you read these motifs in scripture, and we see them quite often, and we see a chaos monster in Tiamat, right? And we see, we see this, uh, Bohemoth and Leviathan and this idea of this serpent dragon rising from the sea. And yes, it has everything to do with the end times. Again, we've talked about that a lot. It's easy to pass over this dragon's betrayal with a wave of the hand, as if he possesses some intrinsic penchant for devilry and to which we are immune. But the sedition of our elder sibling should not be so lightly considered. And his vices tend to run in the family. Listen to how Tim says it here. Satan was not always the infamous villain he was today. Once upon a time, he was a worshipful warden of the kingdom, delighting in the favor of the king and basking in the adulation of his compatriots. He was the exemplar of a son before he became the symbol of a sinner. I love the way he words this. The very personification of betrayal among the morning stars, among men, betrayal is known by another name, Judas Iscariot. Hmm was numbered with the twelve disciples of Christ, the most intimate of all his associates on earth. Judas fellowshipped daily with Jesus for several years, witnessing every sign of his divinity before betraying him to the Sanhedrin for a measly 30 pieces of silver. I was reading this in my devotional today. Again, I'm going through the Gospels right now and closing out with John. Thirty pieces of silver. Now we won't. I don't think we're going to get into that. Uh, but there is something there anyway. 
On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus identified his betrayer by dipping a piece of bread in the wine and handing it to Judas, right? Basically saying, yeah, whatever you got to do here, boss, go do it. And the other disciples, you know, I was laughing when I was reading this this morning, you know, again, because the they, they didn't understand. They thought, well, Judas holds the money bag. So Jesus is just saying, hey, go pay for the room we're in or whatever. They just, there were so many things they didn't get. And what's great, every gospel, the synoptic gospel, synoptic gospels, easy, easy for me to say. And then of course, John, which is a different deal was written 60 years later. Uh, they, they all have this wonderful thing that after Jesus uh, is resurrected and comes back, they, their eyes get opened and they start realizing everything he had said before. Oh, that's why I love the gospel of John so much. Cause it's very, very different. It's written 60 years after Matthew, Mark and Luke. So you have a completely put together uh, perspective on that. Anyway, uh, so Judas, <laughs> they, they didn't know what was going on there. Judas was always a fraud. And I'm not going to get into, could he have a, did he have a choice? Did he not? Satan entered him. He pilfered from the money bag and fiend concerned for the poor. Jesus knew this and he made it plain. Did I not choose you the 12? And one of you is, he says, a devil. Where are you going with this, Kyle? Judas was chosen to be a vessel of destruction. Listen, through whom a far more ancient and sinister, sinister associate of the Son of God could reenact his betrayal as manifested in the scene that follows. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples, of course, looked at one another. I always picture this moment uh, perplexed about whom he spoke. That would kind of suck to be in that room and be like, are you sure? Well, Rabbi, are you sure one of us? Because, man, that's not awesome. And now everybody starts to lean into Jesus and kind of put their arms around him and look around at each other like, is it this guy? Is it that guy? John kind of leans in. Uh, Peter leans in. You can see all these guys kind of like just acting like nothing's going on or texting Jesus under the table and saying, dude, who is it? Right? Like we've all done in meetings one way or another. <laughs> I'll be in Zoom meetings at work. Uh, we got, you know, sometimes 500, 600 people in this uh, team's meeting. Other times, you know, just like eight or 12 or whatever. But I'll take a screenshot, one of my friends or one of my bosses, or whatever. And then I draw a little red heart around them and I send it to them while the meeting's going on. Maybe this is what's happening. Well, uh, <laughs> they're. They're all texting Jesus. Who is it, dude? Come on. Jesus says, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped his bread, he gave it to Judas, <laughs> the son of Simon. Uh, uh, now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Uh, so I'm not sure how much we're going to get into that. Boy, we could go somewhere there. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas moved quickly indeed. That very night, he led the Roman cohort and officers of the temple guard into the garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. And when he pressed his lips to the Messiah's cheek, identifying him to his captors, it was no mere mortal kiss of betrayal. That familiar voice that once sang in the chorus of heaven could now be heard in the treacherous words, Greetings, Rabbi. Have you ever thought about that, that Yeshua... Jesus Christ is sitting here in the garden. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Peter was ready to lop off uh, Malchus's ear, right? And then Jesus has to put it back on for him right there. 
great miracle. But anyway, you ever realize that when Judas leans in for the kiss to identify him, that Jesus isn't looking at Judas. He's looking at who entered him. The ancient serpent of old. That bright morning star. That one who was set in such great glory eons ago had now won, so he thought, and leaned in with the meat suit of Judas on and said, Greetings, Rabbi. That was the kiss. So let's go back. The beginning of Genesis. <laughs> now, I've, I've touched on this. I hate to say that a lot, but I have. So if any of you are just jumping in now, boy, you got to, I love it. One, okay. So one of our regional field managers, Seek uh, Now, Raja, he is, uh, he's actually going through from, from the first episode here on forgiveness. He'll probably get to this one in like three years. So yeah, if he even makes it through it and he's going straight up the chain on these. So uh, eventually he'll get here. But if you just jumped in, Hey, look, we talk about this stuff all the time. So I don't want to, you know, beat the horse that's at the door that's dead. Anyway, uh, the book of Genesis begins with this planet, right? Being what without form and void, a darkness. And I've always thought that to be really interesting. The idea that God creates this incredibly majestic, intricate, mind-blowing uh, universe with all these fantastic colors and ray. And I've always in the back of my head thought to myself, why does earth, when it comes about, why is it then this gloomy, almost prison world? Have you ever thought about that? Because God doesn't, we've covered this. I hate to keep saying that. God doesn't uh, create anything without form and void. Like he doesn't create anything gloomy. It's against his nature. So what is happening? Timothy Alberino points out in Birthright, as I agree wholeheartedly, that when the Bible opens up to us, or rather when it comes to this earth being without form and void, Genesis 1 and between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, like what the world's going on there, there's this, it's a dreadful scene that resonates if you start reading the other portions of the Old Testament and New Testament, Genesis 1 is resonating with divine retribution. Many eminent theologians throughout the centuries were convinced that the inaugural verses of the biblical narrative describe the earth in a state of utter, utter desolation, post-judgment, not among them. And I love, you'll have to get birthright, but Tim goes into just talking about how many theologians and scholars through the years have said, look, this is, this earth, according to God and his nature, what we know of Yahweh from the Bible, we cannot, we cannot assume that we are coming upon this planet void without form, with just water covering the deep, we are not coming upon that at the beginning of all things. We are indeed coming upon that at the end of all things. Now, this also goes to say, and it's okay when pastors say, you know, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The context is not actually from the fall. 
um, way, way, way back when. The context is actually Jesus is talking in that portion about prophecy, about the end time, and the final punt that Satan gets from heaven, right? In Revelation, and gets punted down to earth. Um, so anyway, I mean, it doesn't matter if it, you know, even if you, it can, you can attribute that to the, the fall way back when as well, but that's just not, uh, what Jesus was referring to. So my point here is that we come into the Bible and it's not talking about something, uh, that is the start of these things. It is actually talking about something that has become the end of it, I believe, and many others do as well. And that's where we start the Bible. You know, it's like, uh, Again, I hate to say this because some of you don't like Star Wars, and I'm not like super into Star Wars. Like, I thought the new ones, like, whatever. Obviously, the three for me growing up, yeah. But my my point with this, you don't have to know Star Wars to know that the ones in the 70s and the 80s that came out that were the star, they were like in the middle of the story. George Lucas did that, right? Everybody knows that. So it's when you start something or a book or or a movie series starts up, right? Did Twilight do that? I don't know. Gosh, am I really saying Twilight? But there's some that come in in the middle and then they have to come out with a movie that talks about the beginning and all that stuff. So anyway, that's really what the Bible is. Uh, I guess that's all. I have circled the airport and uh, the emergency vehicles are waiting there and I have finally landed the plane. This idea, remember, of um, Tohu Wabuhu, Tohu Wavohu, this order out of chaos, this idea, and you see it resonate through all the mystery schools of the world, through the, um, the, the ancient snake, brotherhood of the snake from Egypt that comes out and in the end really turns into the Illuminati, turns into the Rosicrucianism throughout time, turns into what the Knights Templar were doing, turns into, again, the Illuminati of the Freemasons. And I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds there because we've done a lot on that, but this is the start of it, the fact that we get order out of chaos. And this is what the the left-hand path and everything with the Aleister Crowley that I did, all that magic with a K, that's what's happening here. And we see it in the Bible that you have this Yahweh, this God, but then you have this tyrant, this author of darkness and chaos. And what will happen in the magic sector, guys, it happens today, happens with uh, the Church of Satan, the Church of Set, all of it, that – well, the Church of Satan doesn't believe in Satan. Let's not get into that at the moment. But with all these other things that, that Lucifer is a hero. Again, to use the Latin Vulgate version of his name, but Satan. This dragon is the good guy, and he brings illumination and order against a God that just wants to keep us in prison, just wants to make us obey him or we go to hell. And uh, the... The book of Genesis, actually, so this is really funny. It says the opposite, right? So when you read Anton LaVey's, don't do it, but he, you know, the Satanic Bible. So I've done all stuff on Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan and all this stuff. Anytime, again, that you find a world religion, it's just a reversal of the Bible. It's, it's saying, okay, well, the Bible says this because the Bible is, guys, the standard, right? It is, it has been here forever. Uh, we're not going to get into the Sumerian and like things that were written, uniform stuff before Moses actually was commissioned to write the Bible, but we definitely had the Bible first. Okay. The, the, the word of mouth of it and the stories. Okay. 
Yamaha. So we get this. It's the exact opposite. They just they just twist everything, and, and it's literally in the end times. It's literally the the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. It is the the reverse trinity, and we see it all over the place. I've talked about it ad nauseum. So here's the the flip out chaos out of order. In the beginning, God created perfect order. But chaos was born of disobedience, which, when fully matured, wrought destruction and desolation. The story of mankind begins with the reformation and the restoration of the order that God had originally purposed on planet Earth. In the Masoretic text, the first two verses of Genesis read, listen guys, as follows. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Pember argues that the translation of the phrase, the earth was without form and void, is not accurate. And there are a lot of scholars, theologians, say the same thing. Uh, the most accurate rendering from the Hebrew should, should read somewhere along the lines of, uh, I think it was Julius First, 19th century Hebrew scholar that renders the term without form, again, tohu, as ruin or desolation, and the word void, bahohu, tohu, bahohu, and emptiness, that which is empty. To buttress the point, Timothy Alberino says, Pember explains that the Hebrew word tohu and bohu are only found together in two other passages of scripture, and in both cases, they are explicitly employed to describe the perfect ruination wrought by the wrath of God. Do you understand that? Now he goes in to prove his point and, you know, that's for the book to do. But that's, you have to, you have to realize this stuff. When you see very rare words in the Bible, um, you can't just say, okay, this occurs, let's say two or three times, four or five times, whatever. You have to then, as a, as a part of your study, and this is what I've done for years, and, and I'm not a scholar or a theologian, but you have to do this. You have to go back and you have to, you have to say, okay, okay, this is a special phrasing and it's only used a few times. I should probably look into it. It's like me writing something today that they find thousands of years later, right? And my, uh, piece de la resistance, my, my word that I use, um, or my phrase rather is tickle my fancy. Again, Rachel hates that. I've told you guys that. When I say, that really tickles my fancy, I do it just to seriously mess with her. But let's say that I write this incredible book, and through it, I only use this weird phrase, tickle my fancy, because they're not going to know what that means, again, in thousands of years. And I only use it three times. The smart people of that day, instead of going, well, what I think he's talking about is, they're going to go, well, he used it three times in his writings. Uh, and all three times, this was the context and this was the outcome, right? This was what he was implying. And every single time, it meant the same thing. By tickling his fancy, <laughs> it meant that he liked it, that it intrigued him every single time. Therefore, that's what it means. Other competent scholars have argued convincingly that the word and at the beginning of verse 2 should more accurately, accurately be rendered, but. 
uh, credence to this view is provided in the Septuagint, where the that's the Greek translation of the uh, the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. You know that uh, where the but rendition is favored in the Greek. These textual hang with me. <laughs> Don't not off the. Did you drive off the road? Are you? Did you enter a ditch somewhere? These uh, textual nuances may at first appear innocuous when considered in isolation, but when the char changes are bound together in the verse, hang in there. We get a very different view of the opening scene in Genesis. May I read it that way? May I propose what so many others throughout the centuries have proposed? And mainstream Christianity, your run-of-the-mill pastor or seminary doesn't care. May I read it the way I believe these guys are on track for? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth became desolate and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Our story now begins with a planet wrecked in the aftermath of a cataclysmic judgment. And if you start looking, and I believe this is the proper way to look at it. I did not always believe this, but I have come in my studying to this place. You guys, drilling down has been happening for, I mean, so way before this at my old church, Cedar Creek, where I was at for 20 years, uh, I had a, a podcast called um, Shatterbox Radio. Don't just think outside the box, just out of the box. With Kyle Gray, Gray, Gray. Sunday. Anyway, so that was great. Really successful. And when I left there, um, I ended that and uh, soon, start, soon, soon started drilling down a few years after we started um, planting churches in Michigan. Long way to say, I think drilling down has been going on for five years now. Or close to it. There have been things, and I again rarely do I go back and listen to any of my episodes unless someone brings something up to me and I, I have to go back and listen to it. Or maybe honestly, I want to refresh what I said about a certain very uh how could I say this? Uh microscopic subject that I really studied for just for that one, and I've kind of forgotten most of it because hey man, you know, I gotta like you know how you call bass in a fishing tournament? Like you catch your four or whatever it is for that tournament. But then when you catch a bigger one, you get rid of your second, you know, your smallest one and so forth because you can only keep four. So by the end, you have the largest of the large. That's what I do in my brain. I just got to call everything that uh, that I don't need. I got to offload it, you know, like like the Titanic, right? I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff, uh, throwing stuff to get some weight out of there. Why am I talking about this? Oh, because I could even go back and hear some things occasionally and go, ooh, I've changed my stance on that. Now, none of it is, <laughs> I no longer believe Jesus is the Son of God. But, you know, it is stuff for proliferate to the uh, gospel that uh, stuff that I go, hey, I've since done more studying and, and you have to be open to changing your mind. So anyway, I hope that some of you can change your mind on this and not – not look at Genesis 1 and 1, 2 and, and the start of everything anymore. Possibly, possibly. Like Ancient Alien says, is it possible that we enter the Bible at the at the end of one great civilization and God is planting the beginning 
of another one, that of which he will redeem all of creation through this special people called humans and give them a place where they can have dominion over it called earth. Satan, his fallen angel armies, ruined everything. They don't get this special place. They're pissed. And it starts the L.A. Marzulli cosmic chess match of all time to eventually contaminate human DNA, destroy us. It happens all throughout the Bible so that in the end, they reign supreme. Could it be possible? Tim says the dragon's primordial primordial insurrection led to the destruction of many worlds and the defection of many suns. Among the mutinous morning stars drawn into the rebellion, six apostate princes, likely numbered among the cherubim, joined the dragon with their respective principalities to form a sevenfold confederacy. This is important. An unholy union is depicted in John's vision of the red dragon in Revelation 12. John says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. The dragon's red complexion is indicative of Eden. I agree with this. The seven heads crowned with seven diadems represent seven princes, and the ten horns correspond with the realms, conceivably planets, under their dominion. When visualizing the seven-headed red dragon of Revelation, we should imagine the head in the center as Satan, the preeminent dragon, prince, and chief of the confederacy. The other six heads, three on each side, are subordinate to his command. Fantastical as it may seem, Timothy says, in modern times, the figure of the seven-headed dragon was not familiar to the ancient world. In fact, it makes several appearances, uh, was not, I'm sorry, was not unfamiliar to the ancient world. In fact, it makes several appearances in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, embodied in the fabled creature Leviathan. We talked about this. Um, prominently featured in the mythology of the ancient Near East, Leviathan, or Latan, as the Ugarits called it in the Sumerians, was a seven-headed dragon of the sea. This was definitely, again, we've covered this, a motif of the time. The foremost significance of the Leviathan motif relates to the uh, Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail in the Sea of the Milky Way, which signals the cataclysmic transition of eons. A complex subject beyond the scope of this present work. Thank you, Timothy, because it's beyond the scope of my brain at this moment as well. Aside from its astronomical implications, Leviathan represents the confederation of apostate dragon princes who dared to contend with the king of heaven in a long uh, ago, ancient, bygone age. Long before us. Listen to this. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff. How long is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Why do you keep your right hand in your bosom? Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. 
Now, when you read that sort of thing in the Bible, married here with the context of what we're trying to, to talk about, do you see? And what did you think it was all these years before? You know, before I got into all this, as I would read that, I would just think it's some kind of uh, whacked out analogy from that time, from these incredible writers, right, that were inspired by God to just, again, give colorful, um, sometimes uh, pictures of how it happened. But listen, in the cosmology of the ancient world, and the more I study it, Outer space, remember, they didn't have TVs. I know, guys, the ancient Israel, nobody of these guys had, uh, they did not have Netflix. So the sky was literally their storyboard. I've told you, I look up into the nighttime sky and I'm aware from what I study and I'm sort of aware of some constellations, but I can't see jack crap up there. I see the Big Dipper and somebody's like, that's a little dipper, you idiot. You know, I'm like, well, it's still a dipper. Shut your freaking mouth. And then I look up and they're like, can you see the Sabagitarius? And I'm looking like, what the f- are you talking about, man? I can't see it. But anyway, the ancient people would see that. They knew it so well. That was their ability to lie awake at night and look up at that and tell stories and be guided. It was truly a cosmic sea above them. They called them the waters above the earth. And you hear this in the Bible sometimes. So dividing the sea and breaking the heads of the dragons on the waters are figures of speech meant to conjure the vision of a galactic war in which the seven apostate princes and the forces they led into battle were utterly crushed by the armies of heaven, guys. The book of Job features a lengthy soliloquy in which Leviathan is dubbed king over all the sons of pride and depicted as an indomitable behemoth unable to be subdued, Save by the hand of God, right? You read that in Job. Notice in the passage above, the psalmist's petition that God unleash his right hand against the enemy, Leviathan, who continues to revile his name. The right hand of God is clearly an allusion to his only begotten son, who John informs us is in the bosom of the father. The son of God is the king of old guys who subdued the dragons in the midst of the cosmic sea and threw them down from their lofty thrones. Ah, but the insurgency was defeated, but not destroyed. Their forces were routed, but not eradicated. The dragons would continue to revile the king and resist him on earth, but they were now princes without a kingdom, and dethroned and disinherited sons of God, doomed to abide the indignation of the Lord forever, with no hope of reconciliation with him. Satan had temporarily evaded annihilation, but he would not escape judgment. After seducing the mother of our race in Eden, the dragon's fate was foretold from the very lips of the maker in one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of scripture. Listen, How many times have we read from the principal's office in Genesis chapter 3? God says, I will put, okay, again, if you don't know what I'm talking about here, real quick, God is sitting there, um, the the Nakash, that that thing in the garden, let's call him Satan, that made Eve sin to bring down the humankind. God gets that, that serpent together, Adam and Eve together, and he sits down with them. And he says, because of what you've done, 
He's looking at, let's say, Adam and Eve, and then he looks over to his right, and there's Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between, here we go, Satan, your offspring. That's the word there is seed. Okay? Between your seed and hers. So we have to stop there. If you're new to this, you have to understand that Satan has a seed as well as the woman. Well, Kyle, I understand how the woman has a seed. But how does Satan have a seed? Well, okay, there's he always has a, an antichrist waiting in the wings. He doesn't know when the Lord is coming back. He doesn't know when the end times are going to happen. He knows the signs. He knows scripture better than us. He doesn't know. So he's always got somebody waiting, waiting in the wings. You look at the worst possible person on earth, and that's quite possibly him. <laughs> uh, anyway, looking at that, in the end times, we not only see him enter like a Judas Iscariot or a Adolf Hitler, or whoever, or Klaus Schwaben. We see him literally, I believe, the Antichrist being a somehow seed, somehow literal offspring of him. Because Satan will have a seed, and you can say, well... God's talking about, the woman here is talking about a seed, a literal egg and sperm that are going to get together and they are, that's their seed, right? That's what it's called in the Bible when we see Judah and, and we see uh, we see this awful situation where we have his kids that uh, want to go against God and don't want to get their wives pregnant. And so they basically, I'm going to tell you guys, it's in the Bible, they pull out, <laughs> unbeknownst to their partner and they um they they waste their seed in the dirt of the tent instead of in the woman and they die okay so we're not rabbit chilling on that but that's seed that's in the bible you cannot argue with me on that seed is sperm reproduction now that's they hated that satan hated that the, the fallen angels hated that because they could not reproduce uh, they they cannot marry they do not marry in heaven that's not their nature in heaven. But Satan will have a seed. And it's prophesied in this very moment. Genesis chapter 3. The same kind of seed, somehow, some way, that Eve did. And God says, and I will put enmity between your seed and hers. And he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Meaning, a human will come and crush your head one day, Satan, and your minions. You're going to get taken down by this very human species that you loathe. But to the woman, this man over here is going to keep striking your heel, this Satan. And here goes the cosmic chess match. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Tim says, I call this the dragon slayer prophecy. <laughs> like the plot line of a thrilling fantasy novel. It just so happens to be true. It foretells of the dragon's final defeat at the hands of a human being, the son of Adam, destined to be born through the virgin womb of a daughter of Eve. 
the virgin birth is insinuated in the phenomenon that the woman is going to be having a seed. Women, of course, do not have seed. This suggests that the seed of the dragon slayer would come through the genetic line of the woman, the line of David through Mary, without the need of inseminization. Really, Kyle? Inseminization. Holy mother of... I'm going to, I'm going to sit here till I say it, because I know how to say it. Insemination. The Y chromosomes would be supplied by God. You ever thought about that? I think we've gone enough. <laughs> okay, we'll go a little more. I know, you're pumped. If you, for a second there, you were like, no, don't leave me, Kyle. It's only been, what, an hour and 45? Oh, is it possible? We're going back to uh, Giorgio Herer Giannignoni from uh, Ancient Aliens. Uh, is it possible then that although barren and lifeless today, the other planets in our solar system were once – oh, he had made this giant point. I skipped a lot in the book. <laughs> you got to get the book. But again, we're likening these planets. Is it possible these barren, lifeless planets today, the other planets in our solar system, guys, that are super unique, if you're a nerd, you know them all and you're going, man, they're really weird. There's really unique uh, things about them. Is it possible that they were – designed with habitable conditions uniquely tailored to their orbital positions around the sun. There is also the possibility that these planets were in fact situated in the Goldilocks zone before being knocked out of orbit by an immensely powerful explosion. Whatever the case, one thing is certain. The planets orbiting our sun were thoroughly pulverized in the distant past. What he's talking about is the possibility of life on other planets. And he calls them the Goldilocks condition of planet Earth. And that would be, if you don't know anything about that, I should probably stop and say this. The distance from the sun is not the only determining factor for a planet's being able to be inhabited. It may be that the composition of the planet's atmosphere is just as critical as its orbital position around a star. For example, if a planet closer to its sun than Earth, such as Venus, happens to be covered in a thick atmosphere densely composed of light-refracting particles to shield it from solar emissions, then it might, in theory, maintain an agreeable climate for conductive and propagational life. So he's talking about this. Conversely, if it's further away – so it really doesn't – you can't say it can only happen on Earth, right? Because it – the atmosphere would just have to change, but long ago, he's proposing, and I agree with him, that these things were changed. And we're going to get into why I'm talking about this um, in upcoming episodes within this uh, exact series that we're starting out right now. Um, the desolate, uh, desolated topography of Earth's neighboring planets marred by the gaping craters of intense meteoric bombardment implies that some cataclysmic event rocked our solar system. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is likely the debris of an obliterated planet called Rahab. And boy, will we get into this with the scriptures. One of the seven shattered vessels of Edom. Ooh. The connotations of the word Rahab, fierce, insolent, proud, boaster, are the calling cards of its renegade prince. References to Rahab in the biblical text are distinctly bellicose and directly associated with the dragon's rebellion and the triumph of the king who vanquished him. I'll read some scripture. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. In the Bible, guys, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, son of God, awake as in the days of old. What? The generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? Was it not you, O God, who pierced the dragon? 
How many times can we read these things and not understand that there was an entire civilization before us and they tried to regroup and do it again uh, once humans were made and they did it in a magical way. They they came in with women. They had their seed. You guys know the drill. Atlantis was not just a fake place written by Plato. How long, Lord, will you let this go on? You pierce the dragon. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab into pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And can you imagine the nation of Israel would be led by this arm? In this host of God's armies, Jesus Christ. The very ancient primordial race of elders that preceded us and were obliterated by an all-powerful God. And yet we still build calves of gold. Stilling and ruling the raging sea are metaphors in the Bible for quelling and subduing insurrection. The shattering of Rahab was the decisive blow that pierced the dragon and brought his rebellion to an abrupt and devastating end. When Rahab exploded, its smoldering shards rained down on the planets in his vicinity. This is Timothy talking here, and I agree with him. Each one striking with a force many thousands of times more powerful than a nuclear bomb, igniting their atmospheres with a firestorm hot enough to liquefy solid rock and vaporize everything else. The impacts would have triggered chains of volcanic eruptions and mile-high tidal waves, melting and washing away every vestige of the rebel kingdom so that nothing would be left to posterity. Posterity, those are two different things. Uh, personified as a spectator to this cataclysmic event, the earth saw and trembled as the insurgent forces of the apostate princes, the gods, lowercase gods, were incinerated before the Lord, his garments stained crimson, striding forward in the greatness of his strength. The Bible says fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world and earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Worship him, all you lowercase gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, the Lord Most High, over all the earth, you are exalted above all the lowercase gods. Psalm 89, guys, provides fitting synopsis of the concepts presented that we've been talking about. Written in a memorandum of the dragon's rebellion, the psalm proclaims, a solemn warning to all those who would dare defy the king of heaven and rise up against him. Listen to this because it's going to happen in the end times. Listen to this because you and I do it now. Guys, we do it now. I always say we, we wake up in the morning. We say, what can I do with this? The Bible calls it our arm of flesh. Uh, great metaphor. Not really metaphor because we have an arm of flesh and bone, don't we? I'm making a fist right now. I'm making a muscle and I'm looking at that thing going, yeah, I could tackle this day. I could go out and Get this day done with this arm of flesh. But God's saying, why would you do that? You got mine here. But why would we do that, guys? Why are you doing that right now? Why are you trying to solve whatever problem you got going on in your life? Why are you trying to do that? Instead of praying through it and being patient with it. And, you know, be proactive in how you need to be, but 
pray and wait on God. Would you rather have God's arm do it? Well, Kyle, my arm's pretty strong. Really? Check this out. For who, the Psalm 89 says, for who in the skies and the cosmos can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A great, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. If you don't believe there's other gods, you're just getting obliterated right here. These are the cherubim and awesome above all who are around him. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, the armies, who is as mighty as you are, oh, Lord, with your faithfulness, faithful all around you. You rule the raging of the sea, all these insurrections that are coming. When a wave rises, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm, the Son of God, Jesus, as your host of the military. The heavens are yours. The earth are also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. <gasps> I just soiled my panties. Now, I don't wear panties, but if I did, they would be soiled. We do have a living illustration of what we just talked about in these verses in the Gospels. And my again, my Bible reading, I'm going through the Gospels right now. He, Jesus, his faithful, the, the, the Lord of the host, so... <laughs> When you can grasp a proper understanding of Jesus leading the, the Israelites, you know, out to the Exodus and everything, and that's the Lord of hosts when he comes to Joshua and just all the things he does at Jericho, you know, all these things that Jesus is doing, by the time he comes, you're going to have uh, a lot better when you get into the New Testament. You're going to have those lead letters, le <laughs> red letters in the Bible. You should stop and you should take some time. Because this isn't just Jesus, who's a good-looking supermodel guy with, you know, a white guy, as we say here, <laughs> with uh, with beautiful flowing hair and uh, you know, perfect clothes and Birkenstocks, and he's walking around flipping his hair. And you know, he was a rock star. He really was of his day. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who just trampled over people and ran over cities to be with him, to see him, to hear him speak. Truly, a three-ring circus. But this Jesus, this guy, uh, was was every bit the son of God that had been for all time. And we find him in one of the gospels. And he's on a boat and he's crossing the sea of Galilee. When suddenly they're caught in a great windstorm. Most of you know the story and the waves are beating against the boat. The disciples are freaking out. <clears throat> they're fearing for their lives. And Jesus is of course, what? Asleep. Dude sawing logs up there. Kyle, was he really asleep? Yeah, I mean, he was fully human. He's like, look, what better time to catch a nap than in a complete rager, in a dark sea where we can be washed away forever? It's amazing to me that the disciples were sitting on that boat with him, the one who rocked an ancient race and obliterated them. And made their kingdoms formless and void. Was now on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Amongst men who were terrified of some waves. I hope you learn to put some weight into those red letters.
Disciples are freaking out. Now they're pooping their panties. They're putting turds in the tunics. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat. You've read this a million times. So that it was already filling. So they're going down. But here is Jesus in the stern, asleep on a pillow. <laughs> they're like, yeah! Overboard! Seas are raging. Picture Gilligan's Island level right in the beginning. And everybody's like, yeah, they're trying to throw stuff overboard. They're fighting for their lives. And, uh, you know, Jesus, you, you just flip to him and he's got that, uh, that, uh, sto little story time, little rocky, rockabye baby stuff going on over there as he's sawing logs, right? And they wake him up. <clears throat> uh, and so <laughs> I don't know what I would have said. To this rabbi. You know, they didn't fully grasp who he was. Of course. Uh, I don't know what I would have said. Kind of like, hey, wake up. Hey, boss, uh, grab a bucket. Start shoveling water, right? Maybe. Or, hey, uh, help us. We don't know what to do here. Uh, hey, we're all going to die. We don't want you to die. We don't want you to sleep when the boat's going under. So why don't you wake up? And then, you know, you can try to swim for it. Whatever. They woke him up and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In our day and age, you would have said, yo, what's up, dog? Are you letting us go down, yo? I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, you get it. So I have hinted around at this. I don't know if we're going to unpack it here or not. <laughs> this is great. And I am drawing this to an end, right? Everybody shut up. So what does Jesus do? You know that he arose and he did what to the wind? This has always been, I've always pointed this out. <clears throat> he rebuked it. And wind being what is causing the waves, right? It was a wind that was causing the waves. Why would he rebuke it? That's a very interesting word. Because when I rebuke my kids as they were growing up, it was a very stern uh, way of putting an immediate end to the insurrection, to uh, how can I say it, to the, the, the absolute wrong they were doing in that moment. It's not a guiding, it's not a suggesting, is it, for you as parents, when you rebuke your child or, you know, you rebuke Satan maybe for something that's happening in your life. It is saying this is a absolute evil thing or a wrong thing, I should say, when it comes to the kids. It could be evil too. Some of my kids, geez, growing up. Uh, that needs to end now. He rebukes the wind. And then he says to the sea, peace be still. And of course, you know what happened? The wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he turns and he says to his disciples, why are you guys, what's up? Why are you so afraid? He says, how is it that you have no faith? Now, I don't blame the disciples. So anytime that you read about them just screwing up royally, I love it, especially Peter. Like, I just freaking love it because, I mean, they all did. They were, they were all just men. They were sinners. But, uh, they, you know, they screw up. But I don't, like, I'm sitting on that boat going, I'm not going to have faith that the that the the pastor or the rabbi at that time 
even though he's amazing and he's a rock star, I'm not so sure that this boat's not going down. So I'm not sure. I don't, I can guarantee I wouldn't have the faith. How is it that you have no faith? He says, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? Jesus is looking at them. You got to have to imagine they are in the worst storm of their life. They're all going to die. And they were fishermen. So I don't know whatever it is that you're like, you're driving. Like we all drive. We don't even think two, two thoughts about it. Well, that's how they were on the sea. They had been through so many storms in their life. This must've been the worst. I mean, it was the worst storm they've ever been in their life. They think they're going to die. They can't handle it. They have to wake them up because they're literally going to die. I guess I'm just putting this analogy out. So if it sucks, whatever, I'm putting it off the top of my head, right? You people. Two hour mark. What do you want from me? Uh, <clears throat> driving in your car, you've done it a million times before when all of a sudden, uh, let's say a tornado comes right, you know, it forms like all these tornado chasers. I'm a storm chaser. It's my business, my job, it's my career. We chase storms. <clears throat> and this tornado uh, forms and literally the car is getting swept up into it and uh, <clears throat> your pastor is sleeping in the backseat. <laughs> And then you wake them up. Uh, you are going to die. You've driven so many times. You've been in really bad weather. You've even had to pull over on the highway sometimes because <clears throat> your wipers could not possibly keep up. I mean, it's just a torrential downpour, right? Motorcycles are pulled under viaducts, just trying to get out of it, and let it pass. And it's truly awful. You've been through lightning storms, thunderstorms, maybe even tornadoes or hurricanes where you live. So, you know, <clears throat> not a big deal. You've been through it, but this is the end one. This is, this is going to be the end one. And then this dude in the back seat wakes up. And, uh, and, you know, says whatever he wants to say. And the tornado is instantly gone. The winds are gone. The rains are, the rains are ceased. Everything instantly calms. Everything is safe. Everything is okay. And, uh, as he's looking at you, he's starting to talk to you about your faith. <clears throat> and all you're doing is looking over his shoulder behind him going, can we, can we get back to the, the no storm now part? <laughs> Can we hold off, uh, Yeshua on the, the lesson of faith and, uh, park the bus here for a second and take a look at the freaking storm that just stopped because you told it to? What the? And they feared exceedingly. And so I know I always picture this scene because this is real stuff, guys. These are real people. I picture Jesus' mouth moving <laughs> as he's trying to impart a lesson on them and really kind of rebuke them a little bit and say, where's your faith, you know, losers? And they're watching his lips move and they're all just looking over him in with their jaws dropped. And they just look at each other as he's talking and go, what is happening? Who is this guy? Because we know Again, with the synoptic gospels that John could now understand 60 years <clears throat> after the crucifixion and resurrection, who Jesus was, that even the powers of darkness. Now, this was, this was not a normal. I don't believe because of Jesus rebuking. I believe this was Satan who does have control over our atmosphere for a time, correct? And over the heavens that we see up there, that would be the cosmos and over the earth to an extent. Uh, and then we'll have full reign once the restrainer has gone in the end times, the Holy Spirit, right? So he's here. He's, he's large and in charge. I think this is a supernatural storm meant to destroy the son of God. But of course, Jesus's time had not yet come. <clears throat> Satan would defeat him on the cross. At least so he thought for a few seconds. 
The disciples didn't know. They were confused. They didn't understand. They had these legions of demons coming out of these men. They see these storms being quelled. They they knew him as the word of God, but they couldn't in their brains equate him with an ancient non-human, so you can say extraterrestrial race of supreme beings that are fighting battles we can't even comprehend or perceive sometimes. That Jesus was this king of old who pierced this dragon and broke Rahab in pieces like a vessel of clay. The Bible says, it's not my word. The son of God, like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock, Rahab, into pieces. Timothy says, the dragon's insurrection was an unmitigated disaster that reaped unimaginable destruction in our solar system. By the end of the war, the planetary dominions or domains of the seven apostate princes were laid waste and left to a to Kareen in their orbits. Tohu Wapuhu. Only the earth would ever be inhabited again. The others were condemned to lie in ruin forever. You ever thought of that? The Bible says, I will stretch my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins. Those towns could be on other planets, guys. And you will be desolate. I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited. I mean, it's a planet. You boasted against me and spoke against me without restraint. And I heard it. Why are we trying to go to Mars? (laughs) Don't get me started. This is what the sovereign Lord says. While the whole earth, but Kyle, just because NASA has uh, foreign deities and celestial gods, lowercase gods, fallen angels names for all their projects. Come on, Kyle. What do they know? Uh, the beast? In the end? What's happening? Who's locked up in Tartarus? As soon as they saw him, they threw the man at his feet and begged for mercy. They knew who it was that stood before him. But the very word of God, the king of old who pierced the dragon and broke Rahab in pieces like vessels of clay, said to them, I laid waste to this universe while the solar system, where my very special rock is. And you say, is there life out there, way, way out there? Is there other things going on? I'm not concerned about that in this particular episode. But we do know that I've said this before. The final kingdom of heaven in Jerusalem comes where? Our eternity is actually on a rebuilt earth here. According to the Bible, here. So this solar system is special, guys. We're here for a reason. You boasted against me and spoke against me without restraint, and I heard it, God says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Lord says, While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. You will be desolate, Mount Seir. You and all of Eden, they will know that I am the Lord, your God. And we can go on to a study of what Mount Seir is in Edom and what that has to do with the red planet Mars. Because Mars is always, always going to pique our interest. Have you ever wondered why? And why it's the red planet? Have you heard me talk about the red uh, throughout the Bible as it flows? That is always a sign. And they're always linked to this dragon. 
I believe Mars was the seat of the dragon's dominion and the high command of his confederacy until it was reduced to a wilderness of rubble and bombardment of Rahab. Since the day he was deposed from his lofty throne and exiled to earth, the dragon has been brooding over his revenge and conspiring to rebuild the ruins of his ancient habitation. A shadow of his contingency may be discerned in an obscure oracle of Malachi. Listen, I hated Esau, Satan, in this text, and made his mountains waste, and his heritage a wilderness for dragons. Edom, which is Satan, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. It's in Malachi, guys. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Paul warns in Ephesians for the people to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then what does he say? He says, because guys, listen, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning human beings, right? But against rulers, against authorities. These are all different, I think, levels of uh, our armies. Authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It is perhaps redundant at this point to emphasize the plural... Plurality of realms implied in this, I like how I'm not editing this out, admonition. I like how Timothy says here, we're going to close it out. We, like the Ephesians, should also take heed. Cosmic powers operating on and off planet Earth are conspiring to reignite. Listen, reignite. The fires that led to the destruction of these many worlds. There is reason to believe that the dragon is mobilizing an extraterrestrial army on the planetary bodies in our solar system (laughs) and perhaps other star systems in preparation for the final assault on the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to get into all this stuff in UFOs, okay? This is a great way. I love the way Timothy Alberino, again in his book, Birthright, plants the seed here. It appears that Michael is going to launch this preemptive strike against the enemy's forward operating bases before the return of Christ. John gets a glimpse of the battle that ensues. Then the war broke out in the heavens. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels also fought. But he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. And the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. This war, as I talked earlier, clearly occurs in an eschatological context as it preludes the rise of the beast. I saw Satan fall like lightning, the tribulation of the saints in the battle of Armageddon. But before we can survey the battlefield of the future, we must look back to the dismal scene where our story begins. Guys, in the next installment of this episode, coming up very soon, we're going to start talking about mankind, how unique we are, and where we sit in this incredible display of this story. I hope and I pray that our time together in this first episode 
of this series has you understanding that we are a very small part of a very bigger thing. But at the same time, we are so special that these ancient, and I would say superior alien races to us now, not when we die, not when we get the resurrected bodies, but now, hate us for the special seat in God's family that we've been given. Now, we're going to settle into this idea of a birthright coming up. You know it from Jacob and Esau. We're going to settle into what is ours and what is theirs. Where this is going to lead, by the way, is by the end of this series, we are going to end up with the end of all things. But getting there, we're going to talk about UFOs. We're going to talk about demons. We're going to talk about gray aliens. We're going to talk about fallen angels. We're going to talk about all of it because it's real. We're going to say, okay, what, what is all this about? And how is it literally playing out? I think your mind's going to be blown. I know I love studying this stuff and I'm so happy to be back. Thank you for listening, guys. The next episode will be coming up very shortly. Again, thank you. Oh, it's so good to be back. You guys are the freaking best. Always, always, always drilling down podcast at gmail.com or drilling down Facebook page. And then of course you can support this podcast on Venmo at Kyle-Gray-88 and help us keep moving forward. Thank you for listening.